You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. It is uh, so good to see you this afternoon. I wanted to start with just uh, a really random question, actually, this afternoon. Do you know the name of your mailman or woman? How many, how many know the name of their mailman or woman? Only three of us. This is kind of sad. Maybe because you never see them. That's okay. Maybe you're in an apartment complex and you're like, I don't know how my, my mail even gets here. One of my favorite things about our neighborhood is that my kids know the name of our mailman. His name is Mike. Great mailman name, I might say. And uh, Mike, I've been thinking about him a lot the last couple of weeks because uh, as he goes from house to house, my mailbox particularly has been very full. I don't know about yours, but mine has been very full. And then I think about that, times that by 100. And he isn't driving from house to house, he's walking. He literally walks from house to house because in Arizona, everybody has their mailbox in a random place because we believe in autonomy and independency here. And so nobody has the same mailbox, and so you have to walk from place to place. And I've been thinking a lot about him because he's carrying a lot of mail, and he's kind of in his late 50s, early 60s. But the question I've been thinking is like, or maybe you're wondering is, why is that? Ah, it's an election year. I, uh, I've been collecting for you guys. I feel weird carrying this up there, like as if this is in the pulpit. But this is just a small sample of the mail I have received this past week from different political campaigns and candidates that are trying to win my vote. And not only the, the physical mail, I just got three text messages over the last 30 minutes. Are we all ready to be done with that in some ways? Can I get an amen? amen? You have some stuff on here. This one says, feel safe, feel secure, feel protected. If not, send a message. Vote on Tuesday, November 8th. We have, uh, who, should, who should decide, you or them? We have, crime is on the rise. We have a voter hotline. Make sure you plan to vote today. We have, this one was really cool. It was like a comic. It just says vote. I won't continue. Some of them get, <laughs> some of them get scarier as we go. I wanted just to spend a couple minutes up front today talking about the realities that we have all experienced living in the culture that we are here in the United States. We have, some, we have a friend from Denmark, so it would be interesting to hear your perspective as well from your own culture. But the last six years have been very challenging. Am I right? When it comes to how we engage politically in our country. Uh, Keaton and I joined Missio Day Communities just around seven, six to seven years ago. I remember one of the first Sundays we were meeting at a different place, this old rundown theater that it was called Fiesta Fountains. It was a glorious spot. Uh, and uh, when we were gathering there, one of the second Sundays we were there, uh, Kevin Platt, who's the pastor of Missio Mesa, had interrupted the series we were in to address what had happened that week, which was both at the same time, or in a matter of days, a police-related shooting, and then somebody who shot five or six police officers back-to-back in two different major U.S. cities. And Keenan and I were kind of looking at each other because we came to the service, and from the context we were coming from, like, who... Who addresses this kind of stuff from the front? This is this is crazy. Is anybody else like look like is anybody else hearing this? And Kevin was so good at nuancing and offering perspective and a vision and running us through the story, as the Soma School students have been learning this week. 
But I love that. And that was in 2000, uh, 2016, the summer. Little did we know that the fall of 2016 would bring a lot more challenges with the presidential election. Over the last six years, if you fast forward to 2020, uh, the polarization has only increased, right? Whether the pandemic, George Floyd, uh, name your issue, it has become more and more, more polarized. And even 2019, before the 2020 election, we gave you that political quadrant if you're part of this church family and we tried to help you give some tools because we felt severely under-shepherded in the political uh, realm. And if you want to access to that tool, one of us, I'm sure, has it on our phone or something we can show you later. I'm not going to do that today. But we're trying to give some tools of how we engage faithfully in our time and place and how do we navigate through the different cultural currents because it's not easy. I just want to stop for a minute up front before I bring us into our passage today. And I just want you to turn to some people around you. If you're visiting us from Soma School, we do this often in our services. Or if you're just visiting us in general. We like to not just have the person up front uh, talk the whole time. That can be kind of boring, boring like a monologue. But rather have dialogue that happens among one another. So I'd love for you to turn to a couple people around you. As you think about the political landscape, the challenges of the last six years, how have you fared how have you navigated them? What are some feelings maybe you're carrying right now is in just a couple days we have another election. And then before you know it, we'll have another presidential election. So I'd love for you to turn to some people around you. Just And if you're like, this is too uncomfortable, I don't want to talk about politics. Like, you know, in my family, we don't talk about religion, politics. What's the, th- uh, what's the third one? Money? Yeah, we, you don't talk about that stuff? Then you can just sit there quietly and nod your head. That's okay. But I'd love for you just to, hey, how have you fared? Like, how have you navigated... Because all of us have been shaped and affected by what is happening all around us and is now a text message we get five times a day. So I'd love for you just to turn to some people. Hey, how have you done the last five or six years as the polarization has increased? Ready, set, go. That wasn't enough time for sure, but let me call you back. Maybe you just got out of a hard conversation that was timely. But let me call you back. Just for a moment, just for a moment, recognize how beautiful that was. You just had a three-minute conversation about something that people yell at at one another all throughout our culture. And right now, I didn't, I didn't hear any yelling, at least, from up here. So not just how have you fared, but maybe the question to be turned is like, hey, how have we done as a church? There's been obviously disagreement in this room. There is not a uniformity of opinion on how we navigate the cultural waters and political landscape we swim in. But I would say, as challenging as it has been, and literally in our city, and I'm not exaggerating, churches have split into two. We have tried to hold unity, not uniformity that people in this room that vehemently disagree with one another on a variety of issues and how to navigate them have learned to really listen and come to understand and to love one another as brothers and sisters. I just want to say, well done. Well done. And it will only get more challenging from here. (laughs) Uh, One of the pastors that uh, I spend some time with from from season to season is a guy from uh, Culver City, in Los Angeles, 
And he said when he was often in big cities in the United States, when he's pastored there and planted churches there, often he would say, I would describe the city as spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, but not religious. Like people are interested, but they're not really religious. And he said, I don't actually think that's true anymore. He's like, I actually think people are religious and not spiritual. And what he was trying to say is that with much of the language we use and the conversations we're having, people are very religious. It just isn't maybe the dominant religions of the day, maybe Islam or Christianity. It is politics. Your political party has become a religion. We carry around these iPhones that are like religious rosaries in some ways, where we scroll through different news stories, trying to make sense of whatever algorithm that's been created to give us a certain spin of the news. Like, we are religious people as a country. So again, the question is, like, how do we navigate all of this? I don't have any silver bullet for you tonight. That's not really the point. But interestingly, the passage we're going to look at as we jump back into the Gospel of Mark, and I said, dang it, this passage has fallen during the Soma School week. We're back into Mark 13. It's, I think it has something to say to us as we try to navigate our political landscape, as we try to be faithful in the culture and the place that we're in, as we try to look, understand what it means to be God's people in our time and place. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter 13. I'm going to attempt to read, which is, you shouldn't usually do this probably, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. Mark 13, 1 through 37. This passage, people describe uh, that have studied it as a mini apocalypse. Apocalypse, as we were in the Ephesians series, if you remember a couple weeks ago, if you were around, just means revelation, something that was revealed that was hidden. So Jesus is going to pull back the curtain for us. He's going to reveal what's going on, in a sense, behind the scenes. As Ephesians was a book to kind of give us the root system of the gospel or the plumbing of the church. That's what Ephesians was doing. Here, Mark is going to, through Jesus' words, is going to pull back the curtain and let us into like some of the challenges and realities of living in a chaotic world. And I'm just going to give us three implications from this passage of what it looks like to be faithful maybe in our time and place. So let's read it. Full disclosure as we read. There are going to be things in this passage that people argue about and have no idea what they mean. And I could spend the next five weeks trying to explain it to you, but that's why we have guys like Nate Hughes, Ben Ide, and Chris Hamilton that have probably studied this passage more than me. You can go talk to them and take up your issues with them as well. It says this, Jesus was leaving the temple. And one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Jesus is going to get really be a, really a downer here. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, uh, Jesus, uh, tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. 
Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. That's, that's easier said than done. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, it's, for it's not for you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Man, these are challenging words here. Verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, that's a passage or phrase that you can talk to Nate, Chris, or Ben about later. Standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back for their cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those days will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Verse 20, the Lord had not cut short those days. No one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Verse 24. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and heavenly bodies will be shaken. That time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it gets its twigs, its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven know the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with an assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is God's word. Let me give you maybe three implications for what we see here. It won't answer all the questions about this passage, they won't give all the insights. It won't under, make a sense of some of the confusing language here that Jesus is using in the Gospel of Mark. But let me give you three implications that maybe might help us make sense of the passage, one, but also, as we think about this passage, how do we live in light of it? What is Jesus inviting us into? The first one is this, that we need to remember we've been moved, and the church needs to remember this in many ways, especially in the West, from the center to the margins, from the center to the margins. Uh, one of the summer school students uh, was looking for some recommendations for a place to eat, and one of the pastors, uh, or pastor of Missio Mesa, Kevin, said, you should go to this place called Taco Guild. It's in Phoenix. You guys ever been there? It's an old church that's been turned into a restaurant. That's a picture in some ways of how scattered throughout our cities, especially in the West, all these churches existed, that now either are empty or are restaurants. The Taco Guild is actually pretty good, if I say so myself. But from center to the margins. Uh, notice what Jesus says here. He says, 
the disciples say, wow, look at this temple. Look how amazing it is. And he says, hey, by the way, it's going to be thrown down and destroyed. Now, you have to know this. If you're a Jewish person listening to Jesus' words, the temple was the place that you found safety and security. Even in the Old Testament, often when they were about to have pending doom or war, the people of God, they would run to the temple because they knew God's presence would be there, and so maybe they would be safe. They had held to the temple as a place of safety and belonging. But Jesus is saying the temple will be destroyed, and it was. And they're going to move from the center to the margins. Here's my question for us. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, what are the things that you hold to for safety and security that actually don't really provide safety and security? What are the things that you're trying to hold to to find a sense of safety or belonging that actually Jesus even here, in a sense, says maybe you've misplaced where you find safety and security in. Much of the political uh, pamphlets that I had up here, it's that basic argument. If you vote for the other person, you're going to be unsafe. This person is dangerous. People are trying to root in a sense of safety and security your hope in a political candidate. But maybe our hope isn't in a building, right? Uh, one of the, one, a really good book around thinking through this idea of the church, us as God's people, who maybe enjoyed for a long time, at least in the West, a place of being in the center of the, of the culture, then now being in the mar- margins. He says we need to make these shifts he says we need to move from center to margins, understanding from we're in the center of the margins, to majority, from majority to minority, from settler to sojourner, from privilege to plurality, from control to witness, from maintenance to mission, and from institution to movement. As we try to engage in our political landscape and in our world faithfully, there's a shift that needs to take place in some of our hearts from not a place of safety and security and maybe things that the church has held on in the past historically, to, from a place at the margins to see people hear good news, to experience Jesus who meets people at the margins. It would have been so shocking for people to hear Jesus talk about the temple that way. But here's the beautiful part of God's story. It doesn't end here with this passage. It goes forward. And later, what we just heard in Ephesians, what were, what were you described as God's people? A temple. That the temple would be destroyed, the physical temple and the stones, maybe like a, even a building like this, it would be destroyed and wiped out. But this isn't the church. The church are the people. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, had established a new temple. And now you and me are the living stones that are part of this temple of God that he's building. And God's presence isn't just in one place. You don't come to a building to experience God's presence anymore. That anywhere you go, as you've been sent with the Spirit, God's presence goes with you. The beautiful part at the end of Mark is that the temple curtain tears in two. And that, yes, it's one thing that people got to go into the temple now and, and experience God, the Holy of Holy, the place where God's, God dwelled. But more than that, it, as it tore, it means God's presence was sent out. That now it wasn't confined to a space, but anywhere followers of Jesus live, God's presence is there because the Spirit is in them. This should give us incredible news. No matter how marginalized or how much more to the margins maybe people become as followers of Jesus, we have the very presence of God. Jesus is trying to misplace their expected hope in a place or in a temple to now saying, hey, you are the temple and I am the cornerstone. 
that holds it all together. I gave you guys these uh, passages around. Isaiah helped me as well. This was from two years ago almost, from our presidential election in 2020. I just reprinted it. This is, we were in the series of Jeremiah at the time, and we got to Jeremiah 29 the Sunday before the election. That wasn't plain at all. Seriously, it wasn't. It worked out really well. But Jeremiah 29 gives us a picture of how to live as exiles, how to live at the margins. I'd love for you these next two days, as you get about 25 more text messages, am I right? I'd love for you just to spend some time maybe every morning this week. Just read through this. Basically, it's just a translation from what Jeremiah 29 says for our time and place as we try to be faithful here and now as an exile, as a people at the margins. Here's the second implication I want to give you. You hear it all throughout the passage. It's the most repeated command. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Be on guard. Keep watch. Do not be deceived. What's being described here is like false prophets or messiahs, people coming in the name of Christ. That happens in our time and place too, right? Claiming in some ways a silver bullet to understand what God's been up to in the world. Even use passages like this to predict things that were to come. But I wonder maybe if we take a step back, there's many in our world, especially in this season, that claim that they, in a sense, have the answers. They have a Messiah-like ability to understand what's coming and why you should put your allegiance in them. Whether it's a political figure, whether it's an Instagram influencer, whether it's somebody who has a really great Twitter platform, whether it's a really successful businessman or businesswoman, there are many in our world that say, hey, I actually have the answers. If you follow me, if you follow the pattern of my life, you will find freedom or salvation, to use that word. So here's my question. I'd love for you to to just think through in the silence of the space. Who are the voices that you're listening to? Like one of maybe the most telling things for us is who are the people, whether it's through scrolling through Instagram, the news channels that we follow, the TV, that we, the TV shows that we consume, who are the voices that are shaping you more than just a couple minutes on a Sunday? Like, who are you, in a sense, marinating your brain with that over and over again you're listening to the same people that are shaping and forming your vision of the world and you don't even know it? Like, who are those people? And it doesn't mean just throw those people all away, like as if those are all bad. But maybe take, in a sense, the challenge this week is to take a noise audit Take an audit of the people that you're listening to in your life, the people that have your attention, the podcasts that you won't miss, the Instagram influencer that you will read every post, the news channel that you will catch every story, the whatever it is. Like, who are those people and how are they shaping you? How are they forming you? Like, what kind of story are they telling in the world? How are they maybe even deceiving you in some form or way? regardless of whether it's right or left or whatever political allegiance. Do not be deceived, Jesus says, but it's so easy for us to be deceived. And here's the truth, and I want to say this to us. The longer you believe a lie, the more true it becomes. The longer you believe a lie about yourself, about your world, about your neighbor, the more true it becomes. And it takes a a serious wake-up call or an act of God in some ways to have that be reframed, that a lie that you've held to for so long. Do not be deceived, Jesus says. 
whoever comes in my name or offers himself as a savior. All right, here's the third implication. This passage is not about when, but how. It's not when, but how. I grew up in a church. If you didn't grow up in a church, you avoided this part, hopefully. If you grew up in a, if you were maybe part of a church like mine, many of you in this room were. But if you didn't grow up in a church, you actually maybe hopefully avoided this reality. But I grew up in a church where there was an obsession about predicting the end of the world. Like the tele, some of the televangelists that like, hey, we see earthquakes and wars and famines and trying to take these things that we're experiencing and seeing and then predict, when might Jesus come back? Really interestingly, in this passage and other gospel passages, it says, you want to know when the end will come? When all the nations hear the gospel. So it should actually compel us as the church because there's 6,000 plus people groups around the world that have never even heard Jesus' name. We have a brother that's part of Soma School who's in a major city in the world with less than 2% of Christians that's considered an unreached place. It's a massive city. And people he interacts with on a day-to-day basis have never even heard the name of Jesus. That's, just a, that's a side point. But Jesus is concerned here not with predicting the when, but how we live in the midst of the place that we're in. That's why he says, keep watch. Sadly, just a couple chapters later, the disciples are going to fall asleep when they're supposed to be keeping watch for Jesus. And we can fall asleep too. I just, uh, I think this is related to not when, but how. How do we live in the midst of our time and place? How we engage even politically, how we um, engage with the circumstances of our life. Over the last six years, I would say the circumstances of our place and and the cities that we live in just revealed what was already true underneath. Circumstances often reveal what's already true underneath. In a sense, when you experience something really hard and your faith is shattered in some way, the question maybe is like, what kind of faith was actually being cultivated before the tragedy or the hardship came? And I think what Jesus is saying here, don't fall asleep. Keep watch. And as we continue to follow Jesus and keep watch over our hearts and over those that we're walking with, when circumstances come that are really hard, and they have, right? over the last several years, whatever's there underneath that's been cultivated, often in secret or in hiding, is revealed. And either it's an assurance and steadiness as we seek to try to make sense of what Jesus is calling us into, or it's despair. So one of our ways I think we keep watch is we keep following Jesus in the midst of whatever circumstance you're experiencing. There's a resolve, there's a resilience that God in Jesus is still trustworthy, and I can put my hope in him. Here's a really vulnerable question. I'm going to turn you back to your groups one more time. What is currently being revealed in the hard circumstances of your life that Jesus is inviting you into a deeper trust and relationship with him? What about the circumstances of your life is something's being revealed about your character or about the things that you hope in and put your trust in? What's being revealed underneath? And what is Jesus inviting you into that space? What is he trying to say? What is he trying to do to cultivate in your heart of hope and trust in him? Turn to some people around you. Again, a vulnerable question. So if you're like, yeah, I don't know, that seems a little bit too deep for me. That's okay. Somebody in your group will, will lead the way, I bet. Ready, set, go.
all right, let me call you back. In 48 hours, many Americans across our country will get out of bed that morning, will uh, drive to work, and find a time during the day to cast a ballot. It's a privilege to be in a country where we get to vote and have the opportunities before us to elect officials. That is such a gift. It comes with the responsibilities, too. And it'd be easy for us, even with a passage like this, or even with the political landscape of our country, to say the gospel has nothing to do with politics. We just kind of, in a sense, stay over here, away from the world, and not engage. But the gospel is political. It's just not partisan. Jesus has come to be king over all of creation, and that includes politics, the political realm. And I wonder, as the religions of our culture become more and more the political parties, that people find their hope, and that in many ways, when people go to the ballot this Tuesday, which is set up over here, that's we don't have our kids' space today, because there's all these different ballot stations, that people in many ways are casting their vote as a religious practice, as in putting their hope that if they vote a certain way and elect the right officials, then in a sense, salvation will come. They'll be delivered from something. Now, this isn't a discouragement not to vote because I think you should. You should participate in the country that we're in. It's a privilege. But I wonder right now, before we get to Tuesday, and you've already cast your ballot through mail. Just ignore that illustration, all right? <laughs> but before we get to Tuesday, I wonder if as you get out of your chair, as an initiation, as a ritual that we're doing, and as you come to the communion table, there would be an act of allegiance. That as you take Jesus' body, represented with the bread, and you have his blood that's been poured out for you, represented with the juice, it'd be a marker, an act of allegiance, that you follow Jesus. That regardless of what happens on Tuesday, or regardless of what happens the next six years, after the past six years, Jesus is king, and at the end of the story, that last arrow over there, when we get to the benediction, and it, in this passage, he will come back and he will restore and redeem all things. And he will reign as the ultimate good and just and right and beautiful king. So yes, let's participate. Let's participate recognizing that our allegiance is found here at this table. That's why the kids get to participate every week in this practice as well, because we're forming their allegiances as they seek to be faithful disciples of Jesus and that, at their age. So I'm going to invite uh, Sarah to come up here. She's going to be serving alongside me. And every week I'll have you stand. This is how we celebrate communion. If you would stand with me. For, with me. We read these words from 1 Corinthians. And then I'm going to invite you to the table by reciting the mystery, which it is a mystery of our faith. This is what it says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, for the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to say the mystery of our faith right now. It's up here on the screen. Clark and Zaid, it's, Clark, it's Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We're going to say it all together. Let's repeat this, and then come forward and receive from the king. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and receive.